I feel like a lot of times we go through life trying to please other people, trying to please our bosses or whoever in our families, etc. And I think that part of entrepreneurism in some way is like standing up for who you are. And it's just being who you are unapologetically. Hi, and welcome to the Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Welcome back to the Sliced Podcast. Today's guest is Jamba Dunn, founder and CEO of Rowdy Mermaid Kombucha. Rowdy Mermaid is a functional beverage company whose kombucha is full of probiotics, phytonutrients, enzymes, and amino acids that is good for your health and great for your palate. By creating a great-tasting, low-acid, low-sugar kombucha his three-year-old would love, Jamba has built Rowdy Mermaid into one of the most popular and recognizable kombucha brands in the fridge. Hi, Jamba. Thanks for joining us. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. Great. Well, we're so excited to have you here. We have already spoken per your article on Startup Blog Post, so I'm just excited to dive more in depth with you on a couple of things. Me too. Thank you. Okay. So for those who don't know you, I know that Jamba is a nickname. Is that correct? That's correct. Your real name is James. My real name, my given name is James. James. How did you get the nickname Jamba? I actually don't know this. It's funny because hardly anyone knows that. So (laughs) how do you know that? (laughs) So I was going to hike across Kenya in the 1980s and I was learning some Kiswahili in Jambo means hello or greetings in Kiswahili. And at the time, My friends just started joking around that when I came back, I was going to change my name to Jamba, and then overnight, everyone called me that, and that went on for years and years and years, and about 10 years later, I called myself Jamba. So you just kind of leaned into it at that point. I kind of leaned into it at that point. It was inescapable, as nicknames can sometimes be, Mm -hmm. and so now I'm Jamba. Okay, so let's get started a little bit with your background. Okay, so you're not from Colorado. I'm from California. California. Okay. And then tell us where you went to school because I know that you have an interesting degree. I went to UC Berkeley and I was studying Egyptology at the time. My degree was ultimately between a couple of different departments, but my focus was on Egyptology and ancient Egyptian coffin lids that were used to define the first hour. That is so fascinating. So what, how, how, how did, <laughs> how? <laughs> well, you sound like my parents. How right? did you get interested? <laughs> Just a lot of the tra- travel channel or, because I too am interested in those kind of things. When I was a kid, I used to think I wanted to go into things like that. And I wanted to travel to Egypt and the pyramids and everything. So how did you turn that into a degree? So interestingly, and I have to take a deep breath for this one, it wasn't necessarily because of my interest in Egypt or necessarily other cultures. It was it was more my interest in historical diffusion, meaning how an idea becomes popular 
and then transitions from one class to another and then from one culture to another culture. Mm -hmm. And I was searching for the, the purest form of historical diffusion and came across these texts that were quite well known in the Near Eastern Department, Studies Department, and just went down a rabbit hole, started looking for more information, started un trying to understand the technology behind it, the reasoning behind it. And, uh, you know, years later, I found myself on the other side of it, having a fairly vast knowledge of uh, ancient Egyptian astronomy and how it related to culture. And because of that, I was really keen on large historical trends, and I later used that to work at a local uh, think tank looking at political trends. And I like to think that today I'm still using some of that knowledge to look at beverage trends or food trends. Yeah, we're definitely going to get there. We're going <laughs> to see how that all translated. <laughs> all right. I that, wanted to bridge that yeah, connection. No, I love that. So that's fascinating. So you went over to Egypt, is that correct? That's and, correct. Okay, so you're there for a while. You're getting your degree, a PhD. No, I got my undergraduate at Berkeley. And yes, I did live and spend time traveling around Egypt. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. So then after that, walk us through what happens next. So what happens next is I found myself very, very deep into historical texts and historical knowledge and being fairly alone in that world and realizing that uh, there weren't too many opportunities for me even in the Egyptological field. Very few people in Egyptology were studying or focused on this one area. All the archaeology seemed like it was over. So now we were just dealing with the fact of the archaeological findings. And I really fell in love with the culture of Egypt today, the Egyptians themselves. And it felt to me like this academic pursuit was really taking me away from the real world. And so I went back to Berkeley and ended up working at a think tank, uh, as I mentioned, as a way to kind of uh, take what I had learned but try to put it to some modern-day practical use. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Was it So it was cool living in Egypt then? It was great. It was hot. <laughs> yeah, I can. I see that. <laughs> I see that. Okay, cool. So you're there. You're back in California. What brought you to Denver? What brought you to Colorado, rather? So somewhere along the way during my academic career, I was very interested in writing and writers and poetry, and it was sort of a background interest because I didn't know any better. I was really loving everything coming from Allen Ginsberg and, of course, you know, huge cultural icon, and I just reached out to him. And we started up a correspondence, and he had invited me to come and study at the Naropa Institute at that time, before it was Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. And it took me a very long time to make that a reality, and he had passed away in the meantime, but that was my impetus. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I also have a note here that I do want to touch on before we dive into the Boulder scene. So. Do you have a background in punk rock? 
Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Blink once if yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I do. Where? Well, I would. Can I clarify because yes. this no, is a podcast, yes. and sometimes in interviews, the question of punk rock comes up. Mm-hmm. I don't think many people understand today the difference between punk and garage. Okay. And I was just talking with my my ex-girlfriend from the Pandoras and White Flag and all Leaving Trains and all those bands. And she says she would still characterize it as garage. Okay. So, so your um, background in garage. My background is in, you know, that actually dovetail, dovetails very nicely into kombucha. Say, <laughs> speaking of garages. <laughs> I, I don't know that we need to segue. We can hang out in punk rock. I mean, garage for a moment. But, uh, yeah, so yes. I'm just curious on the timeline of Egypt, Berkeley, where, where was the garage? Pre-Egypt? Post-Berkeley. Yeah. So I can give you a full yeah. timeline. I mean, um, would love it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is why we love podcasts. <laughs> Since right? we brought it up, we might as well. I grew up in Orange County and Los Angeles in the music world. And I ended up moving to West Hollywood and everyone I knew was in the music world. And that was the garage punk world. In Orange County, it's much more punk rock. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Los Angeles, I would say it was much more garage. And that was an entire life. And it had its ups and it had its downs, for sure. So were you playing music? So I was struggling to play music. I I played guitar my whole life. (laughs) And I was playing in various bands. Okay. I didn't know if it was like management of a garage band that you were in or if you yourself were playing the music in a band. So it's funny to say, but looking back now, yes, I did play music, but I was more of a like a pivotal person in different music scenes in terms of uh, I always knew everybody. I was always connected. I was always backstage with the musicians. I was always at their houses. And I was kind of known as like a major figure in the different music scenes without having actually produced anything. Okay. <laughs> that works. <laughs> that honestly sounds like a real sweet spot. I, yeah, I was a kind of a, a you're style there. council in a way. Excellent. Because you're there, you get all the perks, but you're not really doing any of the work. <laughs> Which sounds ideal, honestly. Well, I always intended to become, a, you know, a world-famous musician. But, uh, you know, I learned later that you actually have to work at that, mm-hmm. apparently. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if, yeah. Mm. So <laughs> it's pre-YouTube. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so I'm sorry. we I derailed us. We're moving back. So now you're in Boulder. You're at the university. Wait, I promised oh. you I was going to tell you the whole oh, thing. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. I keep going. So after a number of years being part of that scene and in being really embedded, you know, hanging out with Rodney Bingenheimer and Johnny Ramone and all the all the bands that we know and love now, the jerks from Black Flag, et cetera, I eventually just burned out and things weren't going very well and I decided to just drop out and and move up to Northern California. That's when I started calling myself Jamba okay. and that's when I started looking around and understanding that there was a big wide world out there with other very interesting things mm-hmm. in it and I just allowed myself to find what my passion would be 
oddly turned out to be ancient Egyptian historical time-reckoning coffin lids from the 12th dynasty. Niche, niche but interesting. very niche. Niche. And, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe not as niche as garage music at the time, <laughs> but, but niche nonetheless. Niche nonetheless. <laughs> and, uh, and then went out and explored the world a little bit and uh, came back and realized that um, I needed to really ground myself more and take what I've learned and put it to some practical use. And first that was at the council where I was helping with looking over State Department documents and giving advice there. And then later that was building websites in the Silicon Valley for a long time for a NASDAQ 100 company based in the Middle East. And it was there that I had my second burnout, I would say, and needed to get out of that culture of the Silicon Valley and California altogether. And hence, coming to Colorado and reading poetry. Uh, look at that. <laughs> what, a peaceful, what a peaceful transition. Yeah. <laughs> was it as peaceful as you did? That sounds lovely. It was so, more peaceful. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so now you're in Boulder. Yes. Okay, great. And so walk us through what happens once you get here, because I know you also worked with Rosetta Stone. Was that here in Boulder or was that back in California? That was in Boulder and okay. in Virginia. So uh, Rosetta Stone is based in Harrisonburg, Virginia. So I was teaching, eventually, uh, writing in the local colleges, and I taught at Naropa as well. And at one point, we, my wife and I realized that you know, we have our first child coming, and you know we got to level up. We've got to get better jobs and have more stability, and this happens a lot of time with new parents as well. So I looked around, and I saw this job at Rosetta Stone that was actually perfect we ended up moving from Boulder to Virginia, Harrisonburg, for several years, and then eventually moved back to Boulder and worked in their Boulder office. Okay. So that was cool then. Yeah, it was you just amazing. just got to go there and come right back to Boulder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was happy I got to come back. I have some family who lives in Williamsburg. Okay. So yeah, the so colonial. You know it well. Yeah. It was fun. It's a pretty different world. <laughs> we used to do like the – I hope they don't listen to this, but we used to do like the little – not a parade – kind of like a farmer's market thing and everybody would be dressed in like the old colonial garb. So that's like my, that when I think of Virginia, that's immediately what I go to. So there were, you know, people that I worked with immediately uh, who were great and they came from William and Mary and Williamsburg as well. And they used to talk about that sort of thing where everyone dressed up. Yeah. So yeah, that's my memory of Virginia. Anyways, so we're back in Boulder. <laughs> you could edit that out. Yeah, yeah we will. We will. Don't you worry. So you're back in Boulder after, with back with Rosetta Stone. Back with Rosetta Stone. And, uh, you know, as much as I loved, loved Rosetta Stone and all the people on my teams, um, it seemed like things weren't going as well as they could have been after we went public as a company. And this is the second time that I had been on board with a company that went public and I saw the culture sort of begin to fracture. So it was during that time where it felt we all felt this added stress and this added amount of the unknown and what was going to happen and product development wasn't going as um, smoothly as it could have been. We felt like we were kind of spinning out on projects that were going nowhere, that kind of a thing that I started brewing beer at home in order just to, like, have a stress relief. I cope. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. As as one does. Yes, <laughs> to cope. So I was stress brewing. Mm-hmm. And I stress brewed so much, in fact, that I couldn't get rid of it. I mean, I was drinking as much as I possibly could. (laughs) And uh, all of us were, and my neighbors were now, too, thanks to me. So I made a whole neighborhood fat. But I could not get rid of it quickly enough. So I hit upon this idea, and boys and girls, don't try this at home. But I started having yard sales on the weekend where we gave away free beer. Oh, okay. So... Was there any other merchandise at the sale? You know, or was it like a lemonade stand for adults? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, it was a lemonade stand, okay. but there might have been like a chair or something else. You know. Okay, great. You sound like a great neighbor to have. Yeah. I well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're forgetting the the punk rock garage uh, element, right, which right, right. is still in the mix. Okay. So maybe there's some of that involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my whole goal was. I need to keep perfecting these recipes, so I need a place to put them when they're done, and I need people to come and drink it. So seemed easy enough. I'll give it away. People will come and drink it. I'll make more because that's all that really matters, and then I'll have more space to put it, and then, you know, that was my plan. Plan in air quotes, really. So one day, after having done this for about six months, uh, my three-year-old came in and asked what I was doing, and I told her I was making beer, and she asked if she could have some, and I told her, no, it's only for adults. And then she so kindly asked if I could make something for her to drink. And so at the time, I felt like a terrible parent, Um, not (laughs) only because I was just like making and drinking a whole lot of beer and listening to (laughs) punk rock, but... um, (laughs) You didn't want to tell her, no, I can't make you anything. (laughs) Exactly. So I love her with all my heart and I want to make something for her. So we had already been making some kombucha back home in Virginia and our neighbor, our friends were making kombucha. We had a housemate who was making kombucha An old friend from Naropa had sent me scobies that I didn't know what to do with at one point. So it seemed like all the messages were, make some kombucha. Seems easy enough, right? So how do you make kombucha? I went online. There were a couple of websites at that time that told me how to make kombucha, and I made it. And it took about a week, two weeks, something like that, and I served it to her, and she loved it. But when I say she loved it, she loved it, like, in a way that was a little too emphatic. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, and then she started showing up because we uh, – I kept the kombucha in this uh, clo- little closet we had in the kitchen. And she would show up with her little cup first thing in the morning. And I was kind of like, huh, that's cute. That's odd. <laughs> um, and she would drink some and she would get very, very energetic And she would ask for more, and I would give it to her, and she'd be really energetic. And I would be watching her like, this is not normal. (laughs) (laughs) What have I brewed here? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What is in this? And so in 2011 and 2012, when you ask the question like that, what is in this, who are you going to ask? 5% of the American public even knew what kombucha was. There were only a handful of companies around that time. There were almost no resources online, and so being a scholar, I decided to do the scholarly thing. I hired a microbiologist, and he went to a lab, 
And he took what I made and he took what everyone else was making and we did a comparison and we were astonished at what was out there. Hello there, it's Sam, the producer of the show. Just wanted to pop in real quick and thank you for listening to our podcast, The Slice Podcast. We're having a great time talking to all of these incredible founders about their journeys and about their stories, and we're really hoping that you're enjoying it too. Up next, Jumbo walks us through what they found, how we took that information, and how they made it into a best-selling product. What we discovered is that it's got a lot of caffeine, that it has a lot of alcohol, and at that time, specifically, most of the store-bought brands were you know, easily 2%. And there were lots of other things in there as well that we didn't want. Uh, fluoride was something that we were always looking at, and we wanted to limit the amount of fluoride that our kids were having. But it was chock full of fluoride because tea only grows in fluoride-rich areas of the world. I will go so far as to say since then, we have also noticed that there's other things in kombucha that people don't necessarily want. I won't go in depth there, but— You're going to leave us on a cliffhanger. I will leave you on a cliffhanger (laughs) there. So I decided, well, let's fix it. You know, we could do that, right? We're smart people. We'll just uh, fix kombucha. Turns out that trying to fix a beverage that's 2,000 years old is uh, not as easy as it might seem. (laughs) (laughs) And trying to understand what kombucha is, is itself something that I felt like was deeper than anything I had ever researched or rabbit holed before. So me with this, well, first this microbiologist, you know, went down the rabbit hole And my daughter, uh, when we were trying to fix some of the issues, my daughter asked me one day if I could make kombucha using some of her favorite flowers and herbs from the garden. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So then I turned to the guy I'm working with, and he's like, absolutely not. You can't do that. And I'm like, okay, well, let's make that our goal then. Like, let's make it our goal to make kombucha that doesn't have caffeine, doesn't have fluoride, is made with like flowers and roots and herbs and things like that and is low in alcohol and actually not only just low in alcohol but conforms to the FDA rules on the brewing of kombucha which is that it can never get above 0.5% ABV throughout the entire process. So his feeling at the time was well this is going to take a lifetime and um, my feeling was well who cares? I mean, it's just a hobby, right? So let's just like just put let's the herbs just do in it. there. Yeah, let's just put the herbs <laughs> in go. there. Let's just let go. Let's just do this thing. And so, so we jumped in, and you know, it took about a year before we got to a place where we could control the alcohol and we could tip generally make kombucha using just herbs. Uh, there are periodically issues that occur with that process. And so in 2013, a good friend of ours happened across a well-known brewer, Daniel Martin, who had been working with Brew Doctor Kombucha and helped start their kombucha uh, brewing process there and had made all of their core flavors. And she had decided to move to Boulder to pursue her other passions uh, in Ayurvedic medicine and shadow yoga. And... She was a little unwilling to go back into the kombucha world, but she decided to do it. And still as a type of 
a hobby. Uh, I rented a warehouse space in Boulder, and we just started, you know, putting things together. Um, she would show up with baskets of herbs with a deep knowledge of herbology, and we would try different approaches. And we would brew sometimes hundreds of batches at the same time and sort of everyone with some sort of different incremental difference. And then we would pluck the ones that worked out of that and change it and brew it again. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. how the process went. And then eventually we were making really good tasting kombucha. And interestingly, I still wasn't thinking about starting a business at that point. You still consider, well, this was still a hobby for you. This even was still with, a hobby. Even for with me. the warehouse. Even with the warehouse, okay. it was right. still a hobby. My, you know, job at Rosetta Stone was great. Things kept, you know, sort of uh, getting more stressful at work. And so I kept stress brewing at the warehouse now because I could no longer do it in the house because I had taken over every nook and cranny of the <laughs> whole house and the garage. <laughs> and eventually we ran into the same problem I had when I was brewing beer. We couldn't get rid of it fast enough. So whenever a batch would finish, uh, I would run around to all my neighbors and say, hey, there's a brand new batch of kombucha and it tastes great. And people would literally come over to my house with milk cartons and things that they had dumped out and we'd fill it up with kombucha. And eventually I started having people showing up at my house offering to buy kombucha. And that was the that moment was the light when bulb. I was kind of like, mm. maybe if we could sell this stuff. <laughs> Maybe we could open up the world's first kombucha tap room. We could make it. People will show up. They'll drink it. The tanks will be empty. We'll make more. We'll make our changes to the recipe. We'll make more. Seems easy peasy. And then pretty soon I get back to reading Nietzsche and, you know, everything's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. So then we decided to open to the public. And that was in 2013. It took a whole year to get through all the licensing. So in April of 2014, we opened our kombucha tap room. Is that in Boulder? It's no longer. Okay. Was. So it was Past in tense. Boulder. It was in Boulder <laughs> in two different locations. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. What do you attribute? So you said in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. The microbiologist said, no, this is going to take a lifetime. Why didn't it? That's a really good question. So I would say that the process that we started with originally and my original understanding of how we were going to go after the problem was flawed because I am not a microbiologist and my approach would have taken a very long time. We eventually hired another doctorate, uh, Phil Calabrese, to come and work with us at um, our facilities. And he's just a very smart guy, and he figured out a, a different way uh, using PCR equipment uh, and genetic tests uh, for us to sort of limit what was in kombucha. And we, we went after it in a sort of reverse way. Instead of plucking out what we didn't want, we sort of understood what we wanted and decided just to begin raising those bacterial strains and yeast strains and trying to highlight certain metabolites that they were creating. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. That's probably the best way I can say it. <laughs> Great answer. So you're there. You've got, at this point, it was named Rowdy Mermaid. Is that right? When you guys had the tap room. Yeah. When we yeah. had the tap room, it was named Rowdy Mermaid. I know the story, but I might make you tell the listeners so they know it too. Okay. On the name. But you don't know the other names. No, I don't know the other names. So... <laughs> 
okay. Here's the story. We were uh, at Cottonwood Hot Springs in in Colorado, and it was New Year's Eve, 2012 into 2013. And I told my wife at the time that I was uh, planning on leaving Rosetta Stone sometime in the next year and starting a kombucha company. At that point, my daughter, who was in another one of the hot springs pools, was playing mermaid, and she was out of control, as she often still can be. She was drinking all the kids. She was drinking. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was like... I, I she was a very odd mermaid, actually. <laughs> she was a mountain mermaid where she was climbing out of the pools and eating all of the, the mint that grows beside the pools with her mouth and then making sort of seal mermaid sounds. Or, I respect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then jumping over people's heads back into the pool. And so I had to shout over to her, um, hey, I need you to stop what you're doing right now. And, of course, being, you know, a child, she did not listen to me whatsoever. And my wife says, okay, so if you start a kombucha company, what are you going to call it? And I said, why are you asking, that? like, out of all the problems I've got to deal with? The name was yeah, like the name was top like, of mind. Yeah, yeah. We, I, <laughs> that was not good. It'll just be the kombucha company. I don't know, you know. And so right as she asked me that, my daughter again jumped over this guy's head, and I turned back around and I told her, listen, you have to stop what you're doing. You're being a very rowdy mermaid. And the person whose head she jumped over, who had his eyes closed, probably not to get splashed in the face, (laughs) I saw him mouth, rowdy mermaid. And it just, it went into this like little room in my head and stayed there. And throughout 2013, thinking that Rowdy Mermaid wasn't the right name, I went to different agencies and I did online polls and all kinds of things. Online, a thousand people decided that the best name for a kombucha company would be Zen Bucha. Zen Bucha. Which was never going to happen. Yeah, I don't love it. Yeah, no. Mm -mm, I don't love it. And then the the agency I had hired down in Austin decided Kama Kombucha, K-O-M-M-A, the Dutch Kama, because it's a moment. It's like a break in your day kind of an idea, which is an interesting concept that in some weird way has just come back around recently. Well, it's a holistic type. I get it. I think in order to fully wrap around it, you'd have to have understood the Dutch meaning of the word Kama. If you didn't, you'd be like... Not totally sure. So we didn't go with comma. I was actually at a World Tea Expo, and I believe it was the CEO of Clearly Kombucha, and and he and I were having a conversation about the industry, et cetera. And he asked me, so, you know, did you decide on a name? And I said, well, you know, there's one name, comma kombucha. And he goes, hmm, what's the other name? And I said, well, the name that came up organically was Rowdy Mermaid. And he's like, that's the one. Like, okay, well, let me sit on that for a minute. So then I asked everybody I know, and I asked some of my social media public, what are your thoughts? And although there are a few people who stand up now and say, I always loved that name, I only recall two or three people actually being on board with that name. Okay, so even like your friends and family, they were like, don't do it? Yeah, like that's not that's not the like that's, not appropriate. That's too, yeah, that's not appropriate. That's yeah. too odd. Or people don't know what the word like people don't use the word rowdy anymore. And then 
of the people who liked it, they liked it for all the wrong reasons. They they wanted to have like this mermaid, like the bow of a ship, you know, bursting out of the bottle. And it was like that was the very reason I didn't want to use the name. Mm -hmm. So having had this love for uh, Nordic minimalism already in art and design, I decided if we went with Rowdy Mermaid, it has to have the most minimalist approach so that we could never be like I some that. grotesque beer brand. Where right. If you're going to go crazy on the name, not crazy, but if you're going to go crazy on the name, you can't go crazy in the other ways. you got to kind of counteract it. Exactly. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we are. So cool. <laughs> Do you ever think back – Would you, you, would, you answer this. Would you consider yourself a natural-born entrepreneur? I think this is a question that came up when we spoke the last mm -hmm. time. I think the, the reality there is that I was always trying to escape entrepreneurism. My father was an entrepreneur. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. I came from a family of entrepreneurs and inventors. And they struggled. And I didn't want that. And so, hence, you know, my entrance into corporate America was in some ways sort of meant to provide that kind of foundation that I originally said I, we needed for our daughter, but we needed for our lives. Somebody, mm -hmm. somebody else could provide the foundation for us. We don't have to struggle the way our parents did. And yet when I fell into small business and entrepreneurism, it just felt like it was inevitable. Mm -hmm. It just felt like a fit for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you think back on your journey to where you are now, can you believe it? I mean, did you ever see yourself here, founder of a successful kombucha company? I didn't, but I think that there's there's another part to that question. You know, sometimes people ask, what's your advice to entrepreneurs? Not that I have great advice to entrepreneurs, um, but one of those pieces of advice is often to really just like own who you are in the world. And I feel like a lot of times we go through life trying to please other people, trying to please our bosses or whoever in our families, et cetera. And I think that part of entrepreneurism in some way is like standing up for who you are. And it's just being who you are unapologetically. And when I look back at my scholastic career, I mean, I was – Definitely, you know, going, trying to make my professors happy, trying to make my parents happy, trying to get the doctorate, trying to make the board happy. And at one point, I think it was post-doctorate that I just realized I don't have to make anyone else happy anymore. So what do I want? I think I just want to make tea and garden and hang out with plants and have fun, really. Yeah. Just listen to music and do all those kinds of things. And so... In a way, the journey to entrepreneurism is also a sort of personal journey to, you know, becoming who you are, which is also one of my favorite sayings from Nietzsche as well. And that's why every founder's journey is different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's so hard to give advice to entrepreneurs. Yeah, because everybody comes from a different background and they approach things differently. And so... As you look ahead and you scale up the company, what's next for Rowdy Mermaid and, and kind of what's next for you as a founder? Is this is this it for you or do you have other things brewing? Pun intended on brewing. <laughs> it just came to me there. I actually snorted. Because of, <laughs> um, that was a good one. Thank um, you. 
So Rowdy Mermaid in 2020 transitioned from a, a kombucha company to a functional beverages company. And one of the things that we we do and that I get to do as a founder is that having had some challenges with autoimmune and having some knowledge about how autoimmune works and how the stomach lining and gut leaky gut and all those types of uh, things work and how herbs and plants could potentially help people in those areas, I get to help make products that will be beneficial to myself and to my my immediate team. And we really take our own bodies into account when we're producing products. Uh, we're not thinking necessarily, well, 20% of the public is going to buy this kind of flavor or this type of thing. And so having that kind of sort of inward approach means that we get to explore things that maybe you don't see every day in the public and Maybe they are first to market, sort of like our mushroom beta-glucans. So one of those things that we had been exploring for a long time was mushrooms. We had always worked with mushrooms, but I think that mushrooms themselves are fascinating, and that's a whole world. And understanding how to beta-glucans actually work with the immune system has been very enlightening to us. So uh, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we were working a lot with beta-glucans and mushrooms. And when COVID hit, we actually were producing acidified beta-glucan beverages for ourselves and the people who work for us to keep them healthy through the pandemic. So it seemed like a no-brainer that we could transform that into a beverage that we could go to market, sp- mm-hmm. go to market with. Yeah, exactly. I, to- I told you this, but I love the ashwagandha one. I think it's great. I just I, love I just ash- brought you a, like I know, a case I, of them. I'm going to crack one open here <laughs> shortly. But I just – I love ashwagandha in general. And I, I was turned on to it, I think, I maybe mid-pandemic, you know, just with the anxiety. <laughs> yeah. It's just – it's great. And it is. I love what you guys have done there in that space. Well, I have one more question for you. Do you ever get tired of kombucha? And about how much do you drink a day? Good questions. Not as much as I used to drink. I used used to drink um, about half a gallon a day simply because I was testing it all the time. Mm -hmm. I would say I'm down to about 12 to 24 ounces most days. And I would say I'm about 24 to 36 ounces of adaptonic a day. Okay. The Rowdy Mermaid herself uh, just proclaimed about a week ago in our house when I offered her a kombucha she turned and flipped her hair over her shoulder because now she's 13. And she oh says, gosh. I don't drink kombucha anymore. I only drink adaptonic. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. And uh, I would say at the office, it's interesting. We, we're all sort of like, you know, going between the, the both mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the ashwagandha blackberry goes very fast in the office. It's so good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd want our listeners to know about you personally or about your journey as a founder before I let you go? Anything I missed? I feel like we covered so much ground. Not necessarily, except I would say, you know, even though I did say I don't have much advice to entrepreneurs, really self-care becomes a very difficult thing when you own a business and when you're an entrepreneur because you're doing everything. And it's hard for people to get away, even for moments like this. Mm -hmm. So I would say that trying to focus more on self-care has been my journey this last year. 
doesn't mean necessarily a lot more time off, but some more time off, more time exercising, more time doing fun things like this, more time out in nature, that kind of a thing. I think that's great. I think, too, when perhaps in a position like yours, you know, I'm sure you feel like you're your best when you're bringing your best to the table and you're your best after some self-care. You know, you don't do a lot of people a lot of good if you're just burnt out all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to go for burnout number three and have to change anything. So I'm here for the long term and I'm just trying to enjoy the ride now. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was very enjoyable. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. To learn more about today's guest, please visit startupblogpost.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, check back weekly for new episodes, and follow us at Slice Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.